The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Let the festivities begin with a third of our wonderful range of artificial trees and Christmas lights. Homebase feels, feels good like to be home. home. Terms at homebase.co.uk. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows, and this is one we think you're going to love. Hi, this is Nina, the host of the Nina Calza Show. Make sure you listen to my podcast where I cover every Liverpool Premier League game. The wins, the draws, the losses. I'm not going to lie, we don't have an awful lot of those. Good things are happening with Liverpool Football Club. And you can listen to this podcast. Just search for the Anfield Index podcast on Acast, on Apple Podcasts, or any other provider you listen through. So join me as I cover all of Liverpool's Premier League games on Anfield Index. Thank you so much for listening. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from the UK and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. These are conversations at our intersections and an opportunity for us to hear firsthand from others in our community how they have learned and are learning to thrive. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so lets others like us hear the voices amplified here. It was her love of blogging about scandal that led my guest today into a rabbit hole of doctoral research in, quote, black women's fandoms and the intersectionality of TV discourse. Kadian Pau is a student, teacher, intellectual, and entrepreneur born in Jamaica, raised in the U.S., and transplanted to the U.K., whose life has been one of seeking out and exploring community, both online and off. Her research and teaching interests include intersectionality, the sociology of blackness, black feminism, and pop culture. And as regular listeners to the show will have already guessed, this enlightening, enriching, and energizing conversation hits every single one of those points. We also talk about her business, Born Beautiful Naturals, and her views on the book that transformed how she thinks about her blackness. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Katie and Pow. Katie and Pow. What a fabulous name. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Is Pow your your actual surname? A funny story about that. It is my surname. However, it is uh, I would say it's an adopted one because my real surname is actually an Indian one. It's Somani. 
because my father's side of the family is um, Indian. He's half Indian. We're from Jamaica, so it's you know kind of common mm, there. Makes sense. But my grandmother, she remarried, um, and actually after my uh, Indian grandfather died, and so she married a Chinese man. His name was Pao, but it's a westernized spelling, obviously. So then she changed all of the kids' names to Pao, even though you know they weren't his biological children. So I'm a pal. <laughs> I think that perhaps speaks to the black experience in so many ways. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. How we end up with these either very anglicized names, i.e. Josh Rivers. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I, um, I did my, I did the DNA um, test about, I think two years ago and it came back and I think it was like less than like 1% European, like, I put this in quotes, blood, DNA. Sure. And I was like, oh, so cool. But then, you know, I'm still touched by colonialism through all of these other ways, right? My last name. like. And so so in the DNA, there was <laughs> trace elements of European, which is fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's <laughs> perhaps no surprise that mine was like 55% European. <laughs> <laughs> I was surprised because I expected for... Totally. Yeah, I think we know the history. <laughs> yeah, we know the history. And I think if you're a black person sort of in the diaspora that you just kind of come to expect that that's there. But I was surprised at how small it was. Now, did you feel any connection? Because when I took when I did the, the DNA um, test, yeah, I was hoping that I might f- feel some sort of kind of resonance or connection to mm. whatever those DNA results revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't actually feel anything. I was just like, oh, there, oh, there it is. Yeah. Although now they're so advanced that they can now, for us, those of us who are African American, mm-hmm. they can now tell us where they think our ancestors landed, and that hit me hard. Wow. Yeah, I, they can that tell you based on your DNA I makeup. Would love to know. Yeah. So I would. So. I won't say the brand because they're not paying me to say it. But yeah, don't. We'll talk about it after because I, offline. I wouldn't mind getting mine redone because I think for me, it, it's really you know sort of just wanting to know. The geek in me just wants to know. Mm. Like I would love to know about the indentured servitude history of the Indian part of my family, and then I'd love to know like where my African ancestors are actually from, and you know sort of like how they got to Jamaica. Um, but in terms of what you said, I didn't feel, I can't say that I felt an overwhelming connection. I was surprised by the lack of whiteness. And in a weird way, I felt really proud. <laughs> it's like, yes. <laughs> it's funny. So I have this, um, I have uh, my friend who's um, Nigerian. Uh, she did her test, and, a, and another friend who's white. Like they both did, uh, they both did um, a test. And my friend is super, super black, <laughs> and my other friend is super, super white. Wow. They're like ninety-seven percent wow. <laughs> on the other end. So it's like okay, <laughs> very interesting. So you were raised in the U.S. Yes. Do you identify as African American? I don't use the term I don't say that I'm African American. I just use the term black because I was born in Jamaica. So I'm from a Creole kind of culture. I very much identify as Jamaican, but I always say that I grew up 
um, with African-American culture and history. So it very much impacts my politics, my outlook, my sense of dress, the way I speak, all of that. But I don't say that I'm African-American because I feel like it excludes the other parts of me. And for me, blackness, just saying that I'm black, allows an inclusivity that I enjoy. Well, black is expansive. That's exactly what I say. Is it? <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> and so you when did you move to the UK? I moved here in 2010. Okay. Yeah. And what has your experience been as a black woman in the UK of the African American experience? It's been really really strange. Um right away I think about the immigration experience. And I think when you're from certain countries here, you you get sort of like a privileged pass in a lot of ways. So there's this tension between the fact that there is this fascination in Britain with Americans and America that um, in general people will be attracted to you or they'll help you or you'll sort of like get over a little bit easier in some senses. No one really sees you as an immigrant, though in terms of um, work and all of those things, you still have to go through those immigrant experiences, right? And so I'm a two-time immigrant because my family emigrated to the United States and, you know, then I emigrated here as an adult. I think being a black woman, I really had to take a step back and try to figure out what is, how blackness functions in Britain. Because my first time I came here, my mother used to live in London, um, the year 2000, on my way back from India. And I did not have a sense that there was any kind of cohesive sense of blackness. And then I think years later when I grew up, I recognized that that was because I was comparing it to what it is in the United States. And it's very different. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's there's a lot of influence from African-American culture uh, here. And, and that that's probably just because of globalization and all of those other things. Um, but I, I, I don't know that I've had an experience as a black woman in Britain that's been so different from the the U.S. As in the kind of like daily experience of moving through the world as a black woman. Yeah, it's not been that different. So um, I can say that the experience of being a black woman in a same-sex relationship with a white woman is a, has a, is a little bit different here. <laughs> well, let's go into in that DC. because... Let's go into that because this is a conversation that we're having as a community all the time, Yeah, right? Can you be pro-black and Mm -hmm. in an intimate relationship with a white person? And obviously you can. Yeah, I think you you can. But you really have to – I think there are two things. One, you have to know yourself, right, as a black person and feel comfortable in your own blackness. And two, I think that whoever you're with as a non-black person has to not just love you. They have to love the fact that you're black and the fact that part of being black means that they have to understand and, yeah, they have to love blackness as well. Because you come from a family, you come from a community, you have friends, um, some of which or most of which are black. So you can't love me in isolation as a person because I don't live in isolation, right? All of these other people influence, like, who I am. Like, we 
are relational beings. So it's not enough to just love the individual black person that you're with. You need to love black people mm. if you're going to be with them. So, And I think when I understood that about um, the woman who's now my wife, I, you know, I felt safe in marrying her. And so presumably she's doing the anti-racism work as well. Like she is doing the deconstructing of whiteness and, and her role in the world. Yes, definitely. Interesting. Yeah. And was she always doing that? I'm so curious no. about this, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, um, yeah, I think her being with me has really been an education. And so she's got like, and especially we lived in the U.S. for about two years or so or quasi lived. She was, she never really had stay. So she was traveling back and forth all the time. But I think her having that experience of living in America where all of these kind of, the racial drama is so heightened that she, and it was around the time of, um, Obama being uh, elected, so she really got to see some of these tensions like up close um, and experience um, black and African-American culture in ways that she'd never really experienced mm, here. Right. She was like 20 something before she moved to a place where black people actually lived. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I had met a white guy like that who had lived in this small town in Germany and yeah. had like he remembered he remembered seeing his first black person. Yeah. And I thought that was such a remarkable Yeah. <laughs> uh, such a unique experience. Yeah, definitely. It's like I mean, I guess in some way I could compare that to but I was a child compare that to leaving Jamaica and coming to America and um you know, having to understand or learn about white people in that way and getting an education for my family. But somehow it's different because even in Jamaica, when I would go see a movie or I'd watch something on TV, they're there. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of hard to escape. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me think of the journey that my mom and I are on yeah. together. Uh, so, I'm sorry, your relationship with your your wife and yeah. this kind of journey that you're on together, um, which I imagine is kind of an everyday. It's, it's constantly yeah, it never it never ends. You know, we have conversations. You know, we may be watching a program, and you know, we, we talk about listening to something on the radio, a podcast, anything. Mm. You know, and these issues can come up. An experience I had during the day that I'm telling her about something that happened at her work. You know, so it's 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 every day. Um, and we n navigate it differently depending on the day. Sometimes I feel like, listen, I don't want to deal with like racial drama right now. So I'm not interested in this conversation. So, <laughs> you know, for my mental health, I just need some peace. And I just want to watch like um, people making cake on YouTube because that's <laughs> what I need right now. <laughs> I love that. So you're based in Birmingham. Yes. And you are both studying and teaching at BCU. Is that right? I am. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so let's talk about the studying first. Yes. What, what are you exploring specifically? So specifically, um, the dissertation that I'm working on is looking at how black women on Tumblr sort of practice fandom and how, and by that I mean how their sort of uh, their lives, authenticity of their lives, like intersect with the fictional uh, material that they're interacting with. 
and how there are times when they are projecting their own lives and politics onto that material or how it's influencing the way they interpret what's happening in their real lives Um, and how they're sort of like in community with each other in these sometimes beautiful and sometimes really um, antagonistic uh, ways. I I wanted to just find and and I'm specifically using the television show Scandal as the um, the case study, if you will, to look at some of these relationships and behaviors and language um, uh, in ways that I feel like hasn't completely been done extensively Mm -hmm. in uh, fan studies yet. Now, when you said Tumblr, I was like, "But Tumblr was for porn," so I didn't even know. <laughs> I didn't even know there was <laughs> fandoms. Yeah, it was right. They well, you know, up. sometimes the porn <laughs> makes it into the fan stuff as well. It's it's incredible all of the different kind of uh, intersections. But no, you know, um, Tumblr really became a place for um, fan production, fan activity, I would say like almost 10 years ago that migration started to happen from like live journal and, um, forums and things like that. I mean, I don't know if you've heard of television without pity. It used, it's now defunct, but that used to be a place where, the snarkiest of television watchers uh, would go and talk about TV shows and you have different thread. And I feel like that kind of um, humor and snarky talent mixed with media savvy uh, and youthfulness has now been transferred to Tumblr. And so what are you discovering about women blackness fandom so what are you finding at this intersection in your research so far i well there so i'm looking at a couple of themes uh specifically um from the data i am looking at this idea of because these are black women is is this um fan activity a kind of pocket of freedom for them a way in which to to play and relax and experience joy or or play with um, ideas around race and gender and sexuality or, and the or isn't really an or, it's a both, um, do the constraints of reality, of race, of gender, of sexuality sort of always sort of like enter into the conversation at some point. Do they? They do. Okay. <laughs> uh, and I'm also sort of like focusing specifically on the idea of both love and sex, because I feel like um, with black women, it's not explored enough from this like really sort of honest, vulnerable and also hilarious way. I think whenever we talk about black women and sex, there's always this kind of Um, pathology about Mm. we explore the um, stereotypes that are damaging or you know we're so busy trying to counteract those those um, things that we don't actually explore like you know what are black women actually feeling about themselves and sex and and joy and love and what do they want and I and I think that this is an interesting way 
and low risk in a way because there is a there are fictional happenings on screen that they're responding to so they can kind of hide the desire behind that fiction um and 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 explore what they think is happening oh that's fascinating yeah. and obviously scandal is so uh, such a rich yeah uh, <laughs> there's so much that happens yeah. within that and you're quite obsessive about scandal i think yeah, yeah. i yes i am so <laughs> and what is it specifically about scandal because there was obviously something about scandal that then mm-hmm. led you into these forums so what was that i would say that it was the relationship between the lead character, Olivia Pope, and the then president of the United States character, Fitzgerald Grant. And it was, there is the sort of like exterior bubble of the the, the cheating and, and um, the sex. And then there is the issue of the interraciality of it and all of these historical kind of wrappers around that lens when you look at them. But then there's also this really kind of um, emotional thing happening between the two of them. And this, the way I feel like Shonda Rhimes took gender uh, stereotypes that we expect and was always kind of switching them back and forth mm. between the two characters. So you get this really kind of this man that has these very feminine qualities, but it's also like quite strong. And you get this uh, woman who is brilliant and the one that's kind of emotionally um, a distance or really sort of leading that relationship in a lot of ways. And all of that interplay, I was just so fascinated to to take it apart. And so I wanted to know is there anyone else that feels this way? Could I find other people to talk to about this? And I just kind of Googled scandal fandom. And one of the first results that came up was uh, like a, a Tumblr list. So I went there and I started searching the search page and seeing who I can find. And the first people that I found were other black women. Um, and I just for a while was just reading and sitting back because that's the way I like to do things. I'm not a person who feels like you got to hear my opinion first. <laughs> um, so I yeah, wish more people thought like that. you know I. I <laughs> I think, you know, we can learn more, you know, if um, we use our two ears more than we did our one yeah, mouth. If we take off our decorative ears and put on our listening ears. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, it was that. And I found like really rich conversations and hilarity. And they really encouraged me to feel like I could, it was safe to get involved and explore um, quirky, um, interesting ideas within myself. And soon I became a real part of that, you know, community and was writing things all the time that people were actually reading and paying attention to. <laughs> I'm so interested in this idea of, of online communities because I think for good reason, there's a lot of critique about the internet as a space for the propagation of perhaps hate or yes. bad ideas or echo chambers or mm-hmm. what, oh, echo chambers is another thing. And I, <laughs> I hate that phrase. And so I'm curious, it's always so fascinating to me rather <clears throat> that there are people, cause I don't, I don't have an online community yeah. outside of Instagram that I'm like mm-hmm. heavily engaged with, mm-hmm. you know, like I don't go to Reddit and I, don't, I, don't, I mm-hmm. obviously was only using Tumblr for one thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I don't have these spaces where I'm kind of exploring community and connection with people. Right. I've kind of always seen, uh, 
the internet as kind of this very one-dimensional space and so it's it's really fascinating to me that you kind of descended into this space that you went searching for community there well I think that what was happening or not happening in my real life uh, influenced that because so this was this was 2012 when um, sort of I went to find the fandom or went to find community and it was the it was the fall of 2012 and at that time, so this was two, almost two years after I'd moved here, and I still didn't really have any community here, right? I, um, I didn't have anyone that I would call my friend. Um, so I think the lack of that kind of rich life offline sort of led me to at least find or embed myself within a community um, that was topical. And I think, mm. I mean, I found more than topical. Yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah, things through that. Um, uh, you know, and so it was very um, fortunate. But, um, yeah, so I think that's why. It was the lack of community in my physical world that led me to, to seek it there. And, of course, it's like not a critique either, right? It's yeah. an interesting... Um, I think it reveals more about my own thinking about how the online space works because mm. I, I just typed an, a critique that I often have, certainly after my own experience, mm-hmm. was that, well, the internet is not real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Right>? like, <laughs> it's kind of this ether thing. <laughs> but you know what? And that criticism that's... is really valid because in some ways I f- still feel I feel that way, too, when it comes to um, I, I think my experience being on Tumblr over years and being on social media has made me sort of have a more complicated approach Mm, to it mm. and a more critical approach. I don't think it's all great and fun and community and everyone's getting along, which I think sometimes um, fan studies uh, um, in their haste to kind of defend or legitimize these like um, community of fans as not weirdos or um, or you know, crazy, try to overemphasize this communal, um, this uh, communal effort. And while some of that is there, it's always there in, um, in groups, right? So in, in clicks. Uh, and that's kind of the way it works in sure, life yeah. as well, right? You hear people talk about, well, activist Twitter or, you know, journalism Twitter, or which means that we're talking about these little pockets mm. uh, everywhere, right? So there are clicks and people join up depending on the thing that they care about the most, their uh, politics and their outlook. Um, and, you know, sort of what's the topic of the day? And I think when it comes to certain criticisms, like we have to uh, certain criticisms online that sometimes, yeah, it's not real because the majority of people, something may be hot on Twitter, but the majority of people in the world don't give a shit about that. Right. Yeah. Oh, I should have asked if I can curse on you. You can. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Don't care. For instance, a, a recent um, attempt uh, on Twitter to get going, this idea that Kamala Harris, um, who's a presidential candidate in the U.S., is somehow not black enough or this movement to like de-blackify her because of her <laughs> um, Indian heritage. And it's like, you can get a Russian troll farm to kind of push that all day. Mm-hmm. But in reality, no one's talking about that. She's not 
not a black woman, right? Mm, she was mm. all over Essence Fest, which is like Black Central in <laughs> you know in the summertime. So you really have to some, be careful uh, because things that are attractive and hot and explosive online don't always necessarily um, transfer to this kind of physical you know, reality. Is there something that you learned about yourself being within this fandom um, on Tumblr? Is there something that you learned about yourself that has kind of carried over into the real world? And I mean, obviously you're now pursuing this, you're reading this degree, or researching mm-hmm. rather um, this particular area, but I'm curious if there's something that kind of, something you discovered about yourself being part of this fandom. I did. I discovered that I'm funny. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I. You didn't think you were funny before? I, it's not something that I would have said about myself. Interesting. Yeah, but then I started doing these, ob- you know, obviously uh, memes based on uh, Tumblr in which I would incorporate, you know, pop culture and um music lyrics and old cultural like black references and people would respond you know thinking that it was funny and started like gaining a a following and came to sort of like expect these um memes so I, i feel like my humor um definitely sharpened during my time there and i came to see myself as funny so you're also teaching at BCU, which has recently launched a new Black Studies program. Mm-hmm. And indeed, our connection is Dr. Kendi Andrews, yes. who I had on the show. And I should actually tell you a funny story, you and the listeners, rather, um, that I was reading One Dimensional Queer, mm-hmm. which is a book I'm obsessed with. It's like <laughs> such an important read, I think. It, mm-hmm. it kind of charts the, the, the rise of the modern LGBTQ liberations movement, mm-hmm. liberation movement, but also how it was kind of overtaken by white gay interests. Mm-hmm. Very systematically <laughs> and very purposefully. Yeah. Um, in any case, um, and one of the things that they that this author flagged was that one of the tactics of kind of um, you know, as bell hooks would call it, imperialist white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, <laughs> was to call out the homo the homophobia of black leaders in the black movement as yeah. a way of disavowing or um, the the legitimacy of black politics, yeah. as it were. And so I was thinking back to my conversation with um, Dr. Kinde, and I was like, oh, my God, I did that. I had such a narrow reading of of Back to Black Mm -hmm. and kind of really only focused on it through the lens, a very specific lens of black queerness, and then kind of called out the bits where the homophobia kind of like Mm -hmm. was brought to the fore, either, you know, by, you know, Stokely Carmichael and Mm -hmm. others. Um, So anyway, that was a long way of saying that our connection is Dr. Kinde Andrews. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he's my he's my he's my advisor and my dissertation supervisor. Um but he's also my line manager. <laughs> uh you know, uh as a lecturer. So And so uh, so what are you teaching specifically as part of the black studies um curriculum? A couple of classes that I've uh taught um I taught sort of uh, popular culture from a black studies perspective. So it was really fun because I actually had two different sections. So I had the sociology students where you teach them about understanding popular culture. And then I also had black studies students where I was teaching that, but from a specifically black like point of view. Um, And it was funny because my approach was just to like 
mostly teach the other students from a black point of view as well because <laughs> I am black and yeah. so that's my point of view. So that's one. And the other one, which I sort of really built um, mostly uh, myself in collaboration with Dr. Dion um, Taylor, who taught on um, some of the course uh, as well, was the Black Feminisms uh, course, a second year course. Now, I wanted to do a course about black feminism that I felt just had some fullness to it and this idea that you can have these different perspectives within black feminism that you uh, kind of um, approach. And I wanted to make sure that I taught it from an intersectional point of view so that we had um, black feminists who were queer, and that how that orientation sort of like um, impacts their, I don't want to say theoretical perspectives because, I mean, it's their lives, it's not theoretical. <laughs> but um, in the university environment, the theoretical but perspective. But in the university environment, their um, theoretical perspectives. Because it's funny because, um, you know, academia would, talk about black feminist theory, but I I really feel that so much of black feminist theory is based on the lived experiences mm. of black women, right? Well, how do those lived experiences translate in academia? What do you mean? So it's one thing to discuss something in theory, mm-hmm. i.e. intersectionality, mm-hmm. and then quite another to live intersectionality. And so I'm curious how those two then, if you do have, when you do have queer black women teaching intersectional feminism or black feminism, Mm -hmm. how that then manifests in academia, in the classroom. And so does the lived experience add to the theory and are students more receptive to what they're hearing? In my experience, yes. (laughs) Um, Because, right, I I use myself. Um, I'm actually going to be... Uh, giving a, a conference presentation next month about this, about um, it's called My Presence is a Present. <laughs> Shout out to old Kanye. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's um, still in there somewhere. He's still in there somewhere. Um, which is really about using my embodied experience in the classroom as a part of the teaching, the learning, and the decolonization process, right? So everything from the examples that I would give my students to help them understand theory, it's not going to necessarily be from a European perspective that I treat um, blackness as the default. And so if I'm talking about intersectionality, I always sort of like use myself in a lot of ways, you know, I and, I, and I'll use my body and I'll say, I can't separate the my queerness from my blackness from my you know gender or uh, sex that's all a part of me where is the dividing point in me mm. like you don't see it you know not you you but yeah. he's like this the this, this student right so my life is not lived in these siloed ways it's all you know a part of me so we can't you know separate out these pieces and think that oh we're going to understand them in parts you have to make an effort 
effort to understand how they sort of like interact and work with each other because these are actual lives and people that we're talking about. And one of the things I say to all of my students, um, whether it's a mixed classroom or, you know, it's black studies, and I say, like, listen, this is not philosophy. This is sociology. So this is real. And I, so I said, when you're standing at a bus stop and you're looking at the advertisements on a bus or in the bus shelter, um, you know, you're in the bullring or wherever you are, you observe those things. I try to, sh- to tell them that this is the connection between the theory you're learning here and this is how it manifests in the real world. So right. this stuff is all around you. This is not just things that you're playing with in a classroom, then you write a little paper, and, you know, that's it. This is life. <laughs> like, this <laughs> surrounds you and affects you all the time. So, you know, I try to incorporate, like, their behavior, uh, their practice on social media, their what they do in their actual lives to reveal the sociological background behind that to help them, like, understand it. Oh, I, I really want to ask how the how the white students respond to that, but let's keep it black. How? <laughs> wow, because <Well, laughs> I, I mean, I have experience, <laughs> but yes. Well, I'm curious about how black students are responding to what you're teaching, because you know the black studies um, mod, um, degree is is so new. Yeah, it is so new. I think. Um, well, there are two reactions. So. One is I try to impart to my black studies students that, you know listen, I want to be here for you to help you and I want to help you sort of work smarter, not harder to use that, excuse me, to use that term. Um, And that if you need help, come to me. Don't wait and feel, you know, sort of isolated. On the other hand, there's also this reaction that Black Studies students have by being so immersed in Blackness all the time is that they have this expectation that somehow what they're learning here is going to translate into some kind of liberatory politic out in the real world. And it doesn't. And it it doesn't because you're not coming to um, a black studies course to necessarily go and physically liberate people or be an activist. Black studies is about trying to understand um, blackness from different perspectives, right? Historical, sociological, political, uh, hopefully we can get psychological, you know, uh, soon and understand how this, uh, the intellectuality of blackness, right? Um, black and intellectual leaders um, and how they have sort of affected the politics that we have today, an education that you don't necessarily get at other universities because... Not necessarily. You don't. You don't, <laughs> right? Because they're they're orienting you from a perspective that sees European um, thought as the most important or quote-unquote classical, Mm. right? And and the most important to know and that black intellectual work is somehow niche and sort of optional. And black studies is saying, no, 
it centers blackness in that way. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the learning of black studies is going to directly translate to overthrowing, sure. you know, <laughs> a, a patriarchal <laughs> white supremacist patriarchal structure. <laughs> I mean, the students can obviously then go do that work, right? Yes, they can, they can go do that work. Digest and, yeah. and learn and, and, and disseminate what, what they learn. And yeah. they can turn that into a liberatory politics. But the Black Studies course is an intellectual exploration of blackness from different perspectives. Exactly. It's like you are still at a university. And fundamentally, these sorts of institutions are white supremacist institutions, right? That's so interesting because I was, I've was i been thinking a lot about this. I'm thinking about going back to university to, mm-hmm. to, for a master's. And I was thinking about this Black Studies course. And I had that thought in my head that it would be this kind of like, I would leave this space galvanized. (laughs) (laughs) But that could happen, right? That, that, That I would be learning about kind of the political maneuvering necessary to overthrow imperialist white supremacist capitalist patriarchy (laughs) yeah yeah you could learn about (laughs) what is necessary to do that achieving it right Right. there's a whole other (laughs) struggle so yeah absolutely And, and and i think therein lies the frustration so where well i have these tools or i have um these studies that kind of tell me like what needs to be done but the how you do it and how you get everyone else on board Everyone's at a loss for that. Right. The, the community <laughs> organizing. Right. Yeah. Right. Which is done in community, not in the university. Yeah. I think. Exactly. Yeah, it is. But even sort of like beyond the community advertising, because you organize the community, but there's still this behemoth of governmental structures that would need to fundamentally change. And how do you do that part? Right. That's the hard part. I'm curious how you. There's two things I want to ask. One, because you're using your own experience, your own embodied experience, mm-hmm. as you've called it, to help teach these people about, you know, blackness, as yeah. it were. And when I say these people, I mean very broadly in the university yeah. setting. Yeah. One, that feels like it would be emotionally draining or taxing, or mm-hmm. that it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm curious about how you manage that process. Um, yeah, let's go there. You know what? It, it is emotionally draining and taxing because you, when you take blackness as a thing that you have to study, it's hard to be emotionally detached because, as a black person, because it's still a reality of your life, the life of people that you love. So, what I have found is that because of doing this labor, if you will, intellectual labor, that in my private time, I don't necessarily want to grapple with these issues. So I may avoid media um, that uh, fundamentally wants me to be um, manipulated emotionally in these ways uh, because that's not fun for me. I do that for work. So... When I have, it's important for me to have activity and time to do things outside of that work because otherwise I can't feel refreshed or renewed. So that means I have to watch, you know, cake making videos on <laughs> YouTube 
or yeah. you know as a with white people <laughs> well not even because one of my favorites is you know Yolanda Gamp a Canadian um, woman who is um, half Grenadian and half German um, uh, but is very clearly appreciates her blackness and um, it's called what's it called how to cake it um, yeah and I, I love her so still black but <laughs> You know, not black in the way of like, you know, throwing up black power fists. So I don't have to, I get all the fun parts of being black without the sort of drama. And, you know, of course, like I watch black um, beauty bloggers on YouTube as well. Like those are my ways that are relaxed or I will like go into my studio and I'll go make products or I'll fulfill orders because mm. then that kind of takes me away from, you know, my my studies or my teaching. That's like sort of like emotionally, intellectually taxing sometimes. So that takes us beautifully into Born Beautiful Naturals. Um, I'm very interested in people who create what amount to be healing projects. You know, Busy Being Black is a healing mm -hmm. project. Um, it's a way for me to connect with my people mm -hmm. and to learn from people about how they are healing, thriving, living mm -hmm. at this kind of what can be this very messy intersection of blackness and queerness. Yeah. Um, and on the Born Beautiful Naturals website, you write, there's so much pain and stress in the world. I want people to feel good when they use my products. Talk to me about the genesis of Born Beautiful. They, well, I think it was the summer of 2014 and that was also the year that I had decided I I'm going to do a PhD <laughs> quite literally like I woke up one morning and I said yeah I think that's the next thing for me um, and that summer as I was trying to think about how am I going to do this <laughs> and um, applying I had already been watching YouTube natural hair videos. I was sort of in the natural hair community. And I came across a video of a girl making conditioner in a microwave. And I thought, what? <laughs> and I should say, I have been fascinated since I was a little girl watching Sesame Street about how things are made. Because they used to have these like little vignettes to show you how crayons are made. Or So I love understanding how, you know, um, things fit together and how they're made. So... I started researching the ingredients that she talked about and figuring out, like, what is this? How could I do that? Because I was also searching for a conditioner that would make it easier to detangle my hair. So I fell down this rabbit hole of cosmetic science and crafting, and I was... So my fun reading was reading about, like, ingredients and, you know, um, chemistry. And I thought, God, if they had talked about chemistry in this way, I might have had a whole other career. Right. Um, um, so that was it really that summer. And I began by trying to make a conditioner for myself. And it took a lot of attempts before I did it. And so when I solved that problem, I thought – what else can I do? Um, and so it was the approach was really about solving problems. And once I felt comfortable enough and I felt like I really know how to do some things, I said, well, I'm going to start giving my little handmade things out as gifts to family and friends. So that took about a year and I did that. And then the feedback that was coming was great. 
And so friends and family started saying, well, can you make this thing? I'm looking for something that will do X, Y, and Z for myself or my kid. And so then I would get on it. And I became a formulator trying to make things to solve their problems or the problems they had, you know, with their children. And that's how the product base grew because I had a problem or somebody I knew had a problem or challenge that they needed to fix. So when you say a healing project, literally, I was trying to (laughs) solve like problems with these products. But I didn't think that I was going to turn it into a business. It was really my friends. Funnily enough, um, the other Dr. Andrews, um, Nicole Andrews, uh, who is also uh, the wife of uh, Kinte Andrews, um, we're friends, and she was the first person to pay me money for my products because she believed in me and liked the things that she had tried and commissioned a product that is now in our line. Um, and she said, you should really be selling these things. She and I thought, I don't know about that. It took a while, and I, I had to work on my confidence, um, and that took me quite a while. But how did you work on your confidence? I um. I was reading about self-esteem just this morning. Yeah, I, I think the more I got feedback from people, because I, I continued to make things, because it was also healing something inside me, as I said, when sort of the intellectual labor gets to be too much or I would feel stressed out, I'd go into my studio and I'd make something because um, it was immediate. I get to put ingredients together. I watch a chemical reaction. And on the other end, within several hours, I get something that I could put to use. And that thing is either a relief or satisfying to me or it helps someone else. And so it made me feel good to be helpful in that way. Um, so I, I kept doing that and letting people try things and I kept getting you know good feedback and improving things along the way. And my wife, funnily enough, offered me a low-risk opportunity. Um, she was working at this... Um, like a retirement village at the time, the activities coordinator, she said, why don't you get, I'll give you a table, pay for a table at our Christmas fair. And why don't you, you know, sell some of your things at the Christmas fair? And I thought, okay, well, this is really low risk. And no one I really know is going to be there. So I'll go ahead and give it a try. And yeah, I sold things. People actually bought things. And I thought, wow, I did it. (laughs) So after that, I thought, okay, I'm going to really give this a go. And several months later, I did it. And I suppose part of that confidence is acknowledging your skills. I mean, I'm listening and I'm like, (laughs) oh, my God, I would never try that. (laughs) You know, I might mix like avocado oil with bio oil. And I'm like, look at this sheen. (laughs) (laughs) Look what I did. (laughs) Look at how I'm glistening. Magic. But but there's but, you know, and I'm on the same journey with busy being black. Right. 18 months in and I feel like I'm just now getting the confidence to say, hey, what I've made is actually shit hot. It's good. Wow. I'm good at this. Yeah. So I'm. I'm, cu- I'm curious. You are good at of, this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think part of it is that is it's acknowledging the skill or the talent mm-hmm. or and 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 owning that, which I think is that's the journey to self-esteem or confidence, right? It's actually bridging. It's actually crossing that line and saying, 
you know, it's it's enough that other people say it fabulous. Yeah. But actually, at what point do I believe it right. too that I'm good at this? That I have to believe it. Um, no, that's that's obviously true because I think, and I don't know. I, in my head, there's this like connection to social media, and I'm like, how do I make that connection? Mm, you can um, make it. I'll, I'll give you some space. <laughs> okay. So, I think you're right that. A lot of other people can say it, but if you don't believe it, then ultimately it's not really going to go anywhere. And I think because with um, with my brand, I use everything. So because of that, it gave me the confidence to believe in it because I see it working, right? I use a product on my skin or on my hair. I'm like, I look good. It looks good, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, I did that. Wow, okay. <laughs> so there, there is there something concrete there that I can hold on to say, like, I know I'm good at this. I know I have the knowledge because, you know, I studied it. I put it to use and boom, you have a physical manifestation of that, of that thing. And what I was going to say about social media is I feel – that so much of what happens on social media is that there are people looking for validation, wanting everyone else to say it or make them feel validated because they don't believe it themselves, right? And sometimes it comes out in really unproductive ways like antagonizing somebody you supposedly alike with really nasty things. And then when the person responds, I'll see the um, antagonizer saying, oh my God, auntie, you really like actually responded to me or Mm. queen. And I thought, wow, you just wanted attention. You wanted to feel validated, but Mm. you're acting out in these really negative ways because there's clearly something inside you that doesn't see yourself as worthy or valid. So it's coming out in all these really sort of um, unproductive and negative and antagonistic, toxic ways uh, online. And I think it's just a lot of people really just hungering for connection and not really knowing how to go um, about it. So I think that was a really roundabout way to no, like I see think, that connection. But <laughs> I, I like it. <laughs> it's abstract, but I like yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm very interested in what you're reading at the moment. Right. So, well, I'm I'm reading a couple of things. So I am listening to um, the audi the audible version of Emma Dabery's um, "Don't Touch My Hair," and she's really good uh, because talking about the sociology of black hair. So she's you know looking at the the history, the sociology of black hair, but also there's this intensely personal connection that um, she has being um, of mixed heritage, um, uh, Yoruba, uh, Nigerian Yoruba, and Irish on the the other hand. And uh, having uh, the kind of hair that she says disappoints people. And she says it because the expectation of mixed race people who are at least black and uh, European ancestry is that, oh, they're going to have these loose coils and curls and waves. And she's like, my hair doesn't do that, right? (laughs) Sure, her hair is decidedly more kinky and sort of like more African, if you will. And there's this 
incongruence for people between the way she looks and the way her hair looks, right. which re- which gets into a whole you know history about identity mm. um, through hair um, as well as uh, skin color, and she gets into hairstyles of um, different African tribes and what that what they signified and. African cultures in um, these really fascinating ways. So there's that. And that's more like entertainment for me. Um, on the academic side, I'm currently reading um, a book by Shane Lee called Erotic Revolutionaries. And I really like this book because I think it echoes uh, where I'm trying to go in um with one of the themes of my dissertation I mentioned earlier, which is about black women talking about sex, you Mm. know, sort of like openly and in these erotic and sometimes playful and maybe even nasty ways. So she's focused and she's a sociologist less on the kind of stereotypical, harmful or pathological um, ways in which we talk about black women and sex and looking at sex and sexuality um, as a potential kind of um, liberatory practice. Mm. So I've just thought of the black feminist lesbian magazine from the 90s in the U.S. called Black Lace. I mm. can't remember the name of the editor. Anyway, I don't know why I thought of this, but <laughs> I mean, I thought of this because you're talking about yeah. black women and, and sex. Um but she was talking, she had this whole thing about dildos and about how dildos were seen as phallocentric by like half of the readers mm-hmm. and the other half just saw it as um, a, a tool yeah. Yeah, to get off with. Yeah. Um, but then she was saying that it made her think, so she was on the search for a dildo and she mm-hmm. went into a sex shop and she looked down and she saw like a box of like those kind of oversized black dildos and it made her think of black men and the Mm -hmm. objectification of black men Mm -hmm. and yeah i just i just thought of that like there there are all these connections right between how black women access their own sexuality yeah how black men access theirs and how those two come together when they do right um because it's of sex or lovemaking right and 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 understanding that there's there's no such thing as um you know, sort of desire or sex that is unattached to the reality that we live in or the kind of histories that we come from, (laughs) right? So these things like enter into our subconscious in in lots of different ways that we don't even realize and can sort of like manifest sexually in our sexual like practice in ways that we don't necessarily understand or for some people even comfortable with, you know? So, you know, the idea that, oh, well, you know, I'm just uh, I'm just attracted to who I'm attracted to. It's like, well, how come you only date white girls, though? Yeah. That's not just that you're just <laughs> yeah. attracted to, you know, that there's yeah. something else there that um, informs that attraction. Um, perhaps it's something else that you're trying to um, escape or that you don't want to deal with or, Or in the know, case whatever. of white people, the validation, right? Or right, or the or the validation. I, I acknowledged that a couple <laughs> years ago. I was like, I've got massive syndrome, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know if that's a thing. Right. But <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I found myself like looking for that validation in white men, right? Mm. Like I needed them to find me attractive, to mm. fuck me hard, to like, right. to to go there yeah. in order for me to feel desirable or sexy. Yeah. And I've been trying very hard to dismantle that thinking. Yeah. It's it's difficult because it's like, you know, 
I'm married to a white woman. And obviously, I've had to come to understand that, yes, obviously, I love her. But there's also a part of me that perhaps wanted life like in some aspect just to be a little bit easier that I didn't want to have to. It's like I am, you know, sort of like immersed in blackness and black studies and all of these other ways. And the very life that I lead means I'm always going to be like fighting that battle. And perhaps in some ways, like, Uh, conscious or subconscious that I wanted part of that life to be a little bit easier. Mm. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Uh, To close, I ask all of my guests the same question. What do you hope for? (sighs) Well, oh gosh, this is, this is a, this is a, I feel like this is a complicated question. It's like, what do I hope for the world? What do I hope for myself? What do, you know? So I leave it purposefully broad so that whatever comes out, whatever needs to come out can. Okay. Well, I have, I would say, two major hopes, right? So I hope that this period of right-wing resurgence that we're going through, not that it ever really went away, I hope that it won't, the curve of it, we've, that we're reaching the crescendo and that I hope it will go on a downward slope soon because I'm 40 and I don't want to be going through this shit at 60. I hope for myself and my family, I hope to be in a better position soon so that I can support my grandmother's retirement. She can go to Jamaica and I can build a little compound for her and my mom to live on. That's what I hope. (laughs) (laughs) Katie, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Josh. (laughs) Katie and Pow is a teacher, student, intellectual, and entrepreneur based in Birmingham. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City, for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.